So if you uh, will rise, let's read the, uh, the Bible verse, which comes from 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And please repeat, gentleness and respect. You may be seated. So I plan to communicate um, my message mostly through stories, and I'll start with my story. But before doing so, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for everyone here for this gathering. I pray that your spirit will come upon us, that you'll give me the words to communicate a message that's an encouragement and inspiring to everyone here, including to me. Amen. So let me begin with my story so you'll know a little bit more about me, and it'll be a basis for what I'll lead into. So I grew up in New England, uh, and I, there's a, I grew up in a loving family, wonderful family, two older sisters, a younger brother. Uh, and I grew up in a, in a house that was right, there was a ball field right behind us. So this is a picture when I was about 11 years old, my baseball uniform, I was the older of the two, my younger brother. And I spent almost every waking hour when I wasn't in school or wasn't eating on that ball field, playing whatever the sport was of the season. I also was, grew up attending a church. It was a Catholic church. And I'm so thankful for that experience because I had an understanding of God. I understand that God was the creator of life, the supreme being. That was the God that, that I knew. At the same time, I developed, there was a fear of God. Now, I know that the fear of God is the beginning of, of wisdom, but the fear of God that I had was, was more the, I was just ready to be, the next thing I did, I was going to be condemned. <laughs> and that was, that was sort of a fear I had. I didn't really know the loving nature of God. And for me, religion became more about the rules. I didn't understand growing up that it's really about a relationship. It's not about the rules. So I didn't know that. But I was thankful for that, uh, for that experience. Well, I went off to, I spent a year at a prep school and was fortunate to get accepted at, at Harvard College. And the first of my family to go to any, any college at all, any four-year college. So it was really a great, great privilege. But this was during the late 60s and early 70s. And some of you who may be older as I am will know what went on in our country, how divided our country was at the time and in great turmoil. Others of you may remember that from history. <laughs> it's always funny to be part of history. But it was, there was a great deal of turmoil. The war in Vietnam was raging. There were many people that were against the war. Uh, there was the rise of feminism, which wasn't totally accepted by everyone. There were racial issues. Some of the cities were burning up. There were the marches and so on. So the country was really quite divided. So it was an interesting, I won't say a fun time, to be in college. So at Harvard, we went, there was a student strike. There was a building takeover, in which students took over the administration building and ushered out the dean of students and issued their demands. There was a riot in Harvard Square, and I was happy to be on a building top watching this. And it was kind of sickening to see the fires, the windows being broken, the National Guard coming in. So that was some of my experience in college. Now, I, I, got, I had some good friends. I established some great relationships. But it was a time of great turmoil. 
And many in my generation, including me, rejected traditional values, including organized religion. So that began a period that lasted nearly 20 years in which, in which I gradually walked away from faith, walk, walked away from any experience with God. Now, if somebody asked me at that time, did I believe in God? I would have said yes. And I probably would have said that I was a Christian. After all, that was the way I was brought up. But I was really far from God. Didn't know it at the time. Far from God. Didn't pray, didn't attend any, any kind of a service. Certainly didn't, didn't read the Bible. So I was far from God. My, the whole orientation of my life was really more about me. Finding the right partner. And I'm glad to say that I did. My wife, Jackie, we met in business school. And I like to say that was the best thing that happened in business school is I found my wife, Jackie. And we've been married for 38 years now. Thank you. But also about building a career. So I started out helping nonprofit organizations, uh, helping the mentally handicapped, mentally handicapped adults. And I did that in three organizations. The last one was one in which I started. But in 1979, I was recruited to come to Silicon Valley with a company that, that was marketing the very first spreadsheet called VisiCalc. I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember that, but it was the very first spreadsheet. It was when the personal computer revolution had just begun. It was an exciting time to be here in Silicon Valley. Steve Wozniak, one of the co-founders of Apple, said that VisiCalc was one of the two products that made the Apple II, and ultimately Apple, successful. So it was a fun time to be involved um, in that company. And so I began, my career began to build. I was brought up in a family in which we didn't really have any, any extra money at all. We weren't poor, but there was not a whole lot of money to grow on. I began making money for the first time. We were able to buy a house, had two lovely children, two daughters, and life was good. Now, like most of us here, life isn't always on this positive trajectory. There were issues, circumstances. You know, I was ended up, and there was financial loss, there were broken relationships, I was fired from a position. So there was, there was the up and downs, but on the whole, life was good. On the other hand, in some of the quiet moments of life, and sometimes it was hard to find the quiet moments of life, as I think it is for most of us, we're so busy with whatever our job is to kind of get ahead. But sometimes in those quiet moments of life, I'd really wonder what life was about. What was the real meaning of life? And I didn't know it at the time, but Blaise Pascal, the philosopher and mathematician, described that. And I only learned this many years later. What he said is that each one of us have a God-shaped void at the center of us. And many, many times we try to fill that void as I did with success, with career, with money, with possessions, with whatever else. But none of those are truly satisfying. None of those satisfying. What Pascal goes on to say is the only thing that can really fill that void is God, is a relationship with God. And I didn't know that at the time, but I did discover that, that later. So I had been about 20 years uh, in which I had really walked away from faith, and I was truly far from God. I sort of risked what Matthew talks about, someone who was, was in the world but at the risk of losing his soul, but I didn't realize that. But that changed 
when I was on a business trip in Paris and I called home. And I asked Jackie, as I typically did, you know, what did you do for the weekend? And what she said astounded me. Now, it wasn't that the house had burned down or someone died <laughs> or anything like that. She simply said, I went to church. I said, you did what? <laughs> she said, I went to church. Church was not part of our conversation at all. But she went to church. I came to find out when I got back home, she said, this crazy lady, what she called her, followed me into my driveway one day and asked me if I'd go to church. <laughs> she kind of reached out to Jackie in gentleness and respect of a sort. And Jackie says, in a weak moment, I said yes. Well, the backstory of that is um, our second daughter was born with a genetic deficiency. And it caused a great deal of stress, especially for Jackie. It required us, with, you can imagine this little infant, we had to bring her to the hospital. I had to prick her heel to draw blood. And this was every few days. So this little baby, Christina, would cry. The older daughter, Julia, would cry. Jackie would cry. It was a very, very stressful time as how to, how to deal with our second daughter. Jackie had taken, a friend had invited our older daughter, Julia, to go to vacation Bible school. Jackie thought that would be a good idea because then she could focus on Christina. This woman who drove into the driveway had noticed Jackie dropping off Julia at vacation Bible school. Her name is Jane Washburn. And what happened this one day, and I only heard this, found out this recently, is that Jane was, happened to see Jackie drive by as Jane was trying to get out of her car, get her kids out, and she heard the Holy Spirit said, go ask that lady to go to church. <laughs> so Jane jumped back in her car and followed Jackie into the driveway. Jackie went to church. And Jackie said, so she began to experience um, a peace that she hadn't experienced in a long time. It was beginning to take meaning for her. So when I came home, I decided to try it. I was going to try church. <laughs> and I attended a few times. Then I began to attend more frequently. And I found real meaning. It was a biblically-based church. It's the Los Altos Union, Presbyter Union Presbyterian Church. Wonderful, biblically-based church. And I found people there were pretty friendly. I mean, I kind of thought Christians were a little crazy. <laughs> well, maybe we are a little bit. But, but they were a, it was a friendly group. And they reached out to me with, with gentleness and respect. So I began, began attending church. And, and I attended a, a class that was, that was intended for um, people who were considering membership. After attending the church, this uh, pastor invited himself over from the church. And he came over and he said, okay, now that you've been going to church, where do you want to serve? He wasn't, would you like to serve? It's, where would you like to serve? <laughs> And, and so I said, well, what's available? And one of the things was children's Sunday school. I said, that'll be kind of fun. I like playing with the kids. I'll go to children's, I'll teach children's Sunday school. Well, as a teacher, you have to prepare. So I did, began reading the Bible. Well, this was a Bible with big letters and colored pictures. <laughs> it was a, a children's Bible. But you can even get some wisdom from a children's Bible. Well, I did then, took a class and started reading the real Bible. And that was very helpful to me. It was, a class, it was a class in which we went through the Bible from beginning to end. 
And I was clearly the, the newest. I wasn't even fully committed to the faith at that time. But many people had been longtime followers of Christ, maybe 30, 40 years. But they were very patient to me. They showed me gentleness and respect as I asked some crazy questions. They, were, they gently answered the questions for me as best they could. I also began to investigate the evidence uh, for our faith uh, in other sources, certainly reading the Bible, but Josh McDowell, C.S. Lewis, and a number of other things. And there'll be a slide with, these are some of the questions that I had, and you may have, you may have had some of those questions, and maybe you're here today with some of those questions. To me, the most important question, while they all were significant, the most important was the first one in yellow. How do we know the Bible is true? Our faith is based on this book, right? How do we know? I mean, some people think it's a bunch of myths, a bunch of stories, nice stories. How do we know this is truth? Well, as I began to investigate the, investigate the evidence, I found there was plenty of evidence. Lots of manuscripts. The date that the manuscripts were written was a very short period, more than any other book that people readily accept as being factual. But most important were two things that convinced me that the Bible is true. The first is how the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus coming in the New Testament and the prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus. I had no idea that that was was the case. So that was very helpful. The second thing that was convincing to me were the changed lives of the apostles. Eleven of those twelve apostles died violent deaths for their faith. And they changed the world. Now the apostles, as many of you know, were kind of cowards. But they changed. And they died for their faith. Now you may say, well, today there are people that die for their faith. There are suicide bombers that are very sincere. There are people that go out and die for their faith. What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. The difference is that the apostles were eyewitnesses. They ate with Jesus, they heard his teaching, they saw his crucifixion, they saw the empty tomb, and he appeared to them after the resurrection. People don't die for a lie. They were convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. Those those two pieces of evidence were convincing to me. Once I understood that this book is real and is true, I also understood that I could have a relationship with the creator of the universe. That he loved me. He cared for me. He forgives me. Now that is incredible. It's incredible for all of us that we can know the creator of the universe who loves us. So in 1986, I committed my life to Christ and it really changed, it changed my perspective Life didn't become, and it it was gradual, it didn't become about me, but it became about glorifying God. And it really took two forms. So I was working in business, and one one of the forms is I wanted to do my job to honor and glorify Christ. And I took seriously Colossians 3.23, which says, whatever you do, work as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. So I took that seriously. The second thing is the joy that I knew 
of having that relationship with Christ, I wanted other people to know. So God gave me a mission that I wrote down a number of years ago. That personal mission is to encourage, inspire, and help lead people to a relationship with Christ and to do it with the platforms that I was given. And initially there were two main platforms. It was my business and also sports. I love sports, love to work out. And you can meet all sorts of people who are not yet believers through, through sports. More recently, it's taken the form of um, uh, the Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast and other speaking events that we put on, mainly as outreach opportunities. And if you haven't attended, I would strongly recommend that you do. It's a wonderful place to invite a friend who may not yet be a follower of Christ because they're going to hear either a successful business person, maybe a professional athlete, talk not only about their profession, but about how God has touched their lives. That's a very powerful way to do it. It's the power of storytelling. Storytelling. Jesus, of course, was the greatest storyteller of all time. Stories are a powerful way to communicate our faith. We can argue about philosophy. You can argue about theology. But no one can argue with how God has touched your life. Storytelling is a very powerful way to communicate our faith. So I realized that and, and so got involved in these speaking events and in the book, Finding God in Silicon Valley. And the intention of the book, the primary intention, and my hope was that people who were not yet of faith would read stories about people they may have looked up to, admire, people that have gone through ups and downs, adversity, some are scientists. And they would say, well, maybe I should consider faith. So that was the intention of the book. So what I've found is I, as I came to faith in, in helping other people come to faith, I've found three principles. And these are the three principles that I'm going to challenge you with today. These, these three principles are very simply pray, be willing to share your story, and be willing to invest time. So I'm going to talk about those, those three principles now. And I'm going to talk about them through stories. The first is a story, his name is Paul Ely. And really the, what I want to talk about, Paul, about Paul, with Paul is, is a woman in his life who had been praying for Paul for a long time. Her name is Jerry Sherim. Jerry had been Paul's administrative assistant since 1968, when Paul's first wife died in 2000, Paul and Jerry married. She had been praying for Paul, knowing that Paul was really far from God. Paul had been brought up for a church, but his whole life was about his career and about success. And Jerry realized that. And Paul did have a successful career. Paul Ely is credited with helping change or turn around Hewlett-Packard from a company, a test and measurement company, into a leader in the computer industry. HP had introduced its first computer, the HP 3000, in the early 70s, and it was a failure. David Packard had asked Paul Ely to take over that division, and he turned it around. And Paul Ely has a very interesting management style, and he labels it ready, fire, aim. <laughs> ready, fire, aim. And it's really applicable to many things in life, including business, because you get ready, 
You try your shot at something, it doesn't quite work, you make an adjustment, and you try something else. Well, that was his management style, and he was a very no-nonsense kind of guy. I know one of his colleagues that were with him at the time, and one of his colleagues, his name is Tom Stipe, Tom said that he viewed, he worked several rungs below Paul, and he said, Paul Ely was one of the last people he had expected to come to know Christ. <laughs> but he did. On April 15th, 2009, 2008, Paul Ely had a dream. And this is how Paul Ely describes it. He said, as I lay there, quite suddenly, an overwhelming feeling of intense gratitude and thankfulness for the good fortune that had filled my life swept over me. The intensity and the depth of the experience are well beyond my limited ability to describe or relate. It continued as I saw my entire life flashing before me like a YouTube video. Then Paul says this, he realized this. He said he realized that it wasn't my great skill, it wasn't my ready, fire, aim approach, it wasn't my education, it was God who had provided all my good fortune. And at the end of that dream, Paul heard this message. He said, Paul, you must find God. So Paul went on a search for God. Paul found a church to attend. He found a men's Bible study to attend. He started reading the Bible and reading evidence for faith outside the Bible. And in 2009, Paul Ely accepted Christ as his Savior. And at age 76, and then Paul dedicated his life to trying to find other people, to help other people find God. Jerry Sherem says this after Paul, who had been praying for Paul for years, after Paul had that dream, she said, I had been expecting something like this to happen. Now it has. So prayer works. Pray for people who may not yet be followers of Christ. It may take many years. But prayer is also applicable today if you're not yet a follower of Christ. If, you don't, if you're still just curious about, about God, pray. It may sound strange. But pray for your unbelief. Pray for your unbelief. You may be surprised at the message you hear. It may be to continue to come to gatherings like this. It may be to start to read the Bible. It may be to reach out to someone who you know, a friend you know, who is a follower of Christ, and ask them some questions. So pray for your unbelief. For those of us here today who are followers of Christ, pray for your friends who you know who are not yet believers. I keep a list of people that I pray about all the time, and it's amazing what can happen when you do that. And pray for opportunities to meet other people. So prayer is one way to reach, an important way to reach out to people with gentleness and respect. Part of prayer is listening. And I'll tell you a personal story. I had a friend that I was reaching out to. He was a tennis buddy. His name is Ed. And Ed, I come to know, was not, not a follower of Christ. But I would invite him to events like the prayer breakfast, and he'd come and seem to enjoy it. So one day I suggested, I said, Ed, why don't we do a little study together? And he said, okay. So we agreed to do a study. So, okay, let's, next time after we play, let's get some coffee and we'll do the study together. And he said, okay. So that day came, we played some tennis, and I, and I went over and said, Ed, okay, you ready to let's, let's get a cup of coffee and start the study? He said, no. <laughs> he said he wasn't, he didn't seem like he was ready. Well, I went in the locker room, and of course I was disappointed. 
But then I hear a clear voice from the Holy Spirit, which said, ask him again. So I went over to Ed's locker and I said, Ed, you sure you don't want to do this? Let's, let's start this discussion. And he said, yes, I would. So I'm going to pick up on that point, that, an Ed story after I make my next point. The next point is be willing to tell your story. Each one of us have a story. I told, I told my story, and it took me maybe 15 minutes or so to tell her story. You don't often get 15 minutes. You might get five minutes. You might get 30 seconds. But as it says in 1 Peter, be prepared to tell your story. So telling your, telling your story is important. Does anyone here use Facebook? This is Silicon Valley, right? People use Facebook. Well, I'm going to tell you a story about um, uh, an executive, a middle-level manager at Facebook. Her name is Deb Liu. Deb is a committed follower of Christ, and Deb has a variety of ways in which she tells her story. Some of them are very subtle. One of them is by being an absolute great employee and also treating people well. And this is what, this is what Deb has to say about, about her job. She said, I want to see my job as a way to glorify God not just as a way to do something and have a vocation. God created us to have an impact. God gave us the ability to do so much. He gave us gifts and talents. We can either bury them or multiply them. We glorify God when we multiply our talents. And she treats people well. She says this, I want each person who sees me to believe they are the only person I care about for the time I am with them. I believe that is what God does for us. So she communicates that she cares about people. She does a great job. She hopes to draw people to her. And then may ask her about her faith. Now, you may not be able to see it in the picture, but Deb wears a cross most of the time. Her hope is that people will see that what drives her is her faith. And that's a very subtle way to reach out to people. The other thing that she does, and I found this really very interesting, is Deb will write about her faith on her personal Facebook page, knowing that the people that work for her and her other colleagues at Facebook will read her personal Facebook page. So that's a way to subtly communicate your faith. Deb is also engages in one-on-one -on -one conversations which people express an interest. Clearly, she was went public with it. She agreed to have her story in this book. And I've also heard, heard her at public forums. Deb Liu tells her story. Pastor Herman, in July, preached an amazing series, for those of you who are here, encouraging us to tell our stories. And in, in, in that case, he was talking about going past ethnic boundaries and racial boundaries to tell our story. Storytelling is very powerful. The same principles apply in telling our story of faith to other people. One of the principles um, that he mentioned was uh, in, in telling our story is, is also listening. Listening to someone else's story and, and then telling our story, finding out maybe there's, there's common ground. And if today you're not a follower of Christ, you have a story. I'd encourage you to meet, to get together with someone who might be a follower, who is a follower of Christ. Tell your story. What are the barriers to faith that you have? 
Maybe you can, you can overcome those barriers. Each one of us has a story. Be prepared to tell your story. So back to my story about Ed. So Ed and I got together, and I asked Ed some questions. And he began to share his story. Ed told me that he was angry with God. His parents had died at a very young age, and he had the responsibility for raising the family. He was angry with God. He said, how could God ever do this to him? I also had a chance to share my story with Ed. And while that wasn't my story, we had some common ground because I had walked away from faith for nearly 20 years, as he had. We had a great discussion that day that lasted about two hours and had a number of subsequent conversations. And I'll conclude the story when I make my next point. The next point is be willing to invest time. Be willing to invest time. I'm going to tell the story about Jada M. And really the aspect of her story that I want to emphasize is a woman that came into Jada's life. This woman's name is Janelle, who invested time in Jada's life to change the trajectory of her life and the life of many others. Her friend's name is Janelle. Jada M. was brought up in South Korea, a Buddhist background, moved to Southern California. Some friends in school had reached out to Jada in gentleness and respect, invited Jada to church. She went. She began to get some meaning through that. She became a follower of Christ. And in fact, she married someone who was also a follower of Christ. But in Jada's words, she said, faith was secondary. Work, my career, was primary. Her work was the stronghold of her life. But Jada was also sickly as a child. She began to develop some migraine headaches to the point where she had to cut back on work. They became so severe she had to give up work altogether. So if you can imagine that, someone whose stronghold is their career and now they have to give it up. That's gone. That was what was filling her void. Work, now that's gone. Now Jada prayed. Didn't seem to work. But Janelle entered her life. Janelle began spending some time with Jada, praying for her. And one day invited Jada to go to a healing service at Jubilee Christian Center. Jada, who didn't typically go out of home much because sunlight and all sorts of things would cause these migraines to come back, agreed to go because Jada trusted Janelle, who had invested some time in her, in her life. So Jada went to, the, uh, to this healing service, and she said she felt a connection with Pastor Cho. Pastor Cho was a visiting pastor from South Korea. She wanted to go to talk to him, but it was such a crowd around him, she couldn't. But Janelle said, listen, I know Pastor Cho. Let's go around the back, and you'll meet him, and he'll pray for you. So Pastor Cho did that. He put his hand on Jada and prayed for her. And this is what Jada M. has to say about that. She says, I did not feel anything in the moment, but accepted the prayer. When I got home, I prayed to God. I accept that you are going to heal me or I'm going to die. See, Jada was suicidal. She was ready to end her life. That night, I stopped all medication. Either I'd be healed or I would die. This is the end of the road. Well, Jada went through three nights which describes her body just purged itself. Her family thought she was going to die. She said, no, I think I have to go through this. And this is what she describes after she woke up. She says, when I woke up, 
I was a new person. My mind was crystal clear. I was light as a feather. I felt that I could fly. I knew I was healed and started praising God. Even my husband commented that I looked and sounded different. I was a new creation, full of energy and life. Jada M. experienced a miracle. Janelle came alongside her so that, to help Jada so she could experience that miracle. So Jada says this, she says, I wanted to serve God and was willing to do whatever he wanted me to do. She was now fully committed to her faith. So she went on a search to find out what is that. She kind of felt drawn to doing something in women's issues. And after a few weeks, she happened to go to a conference, an anti-trafficking conference. And she heard the speaker say, while we're able to, to rescue some of these women from human trafficking, we don't know what to do with them. Jada says she heard a message from God at that point to do something about that. So God put it on her heart to help these women who were rescued from human trafficking. That's what she did. She went home, and I think her husband, Carl, is a saint. She said, Carl, we're going to buy a house for these women who were rescued from human trafficking. And he agreed. <laughs> she started a program. They bought a house, started a nonprofit called Freedom House. And today there are two of these, two of these houses. Hundreds of women have gotten their lives together as a result of that. And if you think about this, her friend Janelle had taken the time, invested the effort to reach out to Jada, changed not only Jada's life, but the life of hundreds of women. So praise, praise, praise God for that. So for each one of us, we have an opportunity to invest time. And that's my encouragement, my challenge, to invest time. If you're not a follower of Christ, invest the time to look at the evidence. That's one thing you could do for Christ. I took the time to investigate the evidence. Paul Ely took the time to investigate the evidence. And we found that the Bible is true. If you think about it, there is no more important decision in life that we can make than where to put our faith and our trust it has eternal consequences. Isn't that worth spending some time? Absolutely. And those of us who are followers of Christ, invest some time in the lives of others, family members, friends who you know who are not followers of Christ. You know, I've had, I've had some success in business, and while that's nice, I've found nothing has been more satisfying, nothing has been more enjoyable to me and when I've helped someone on their spiritual walk. Each one of us had that opportunity to invest in the lives of other people and help them on their, on their spiritual journey. So let me finish up my story about Ed. So one Christmas a few years ago, I got probably the greatest Christmas present that I ever had. Ed called me. He told me he accepted Christ as his Savior. As it turned out, I wasn't the only one. He had a family member that had been reaching out to him and, in fact, someone in prison. He had visited someone, had noticed this guy who thought there was something special about him. This prisoner had shared his story about faith. So that's what he, that's what he did. So Ed came to be a follower of Christ. So these, these principles that I've talked about, being pray, share your story, invest time. There's one more, and that is relax. 
The results aren't up to you. The results are up to God. Each individual has to make their decisions. Our, all we're to do is to be obedient, to obey what God would have us do. So let me end, let me end this way. We have an opportunity, an amazing opportunity. We live in an incredible area, Silicon Valley. The world has its eyes on us. We're the leader in innovation and social trends and technology and entrepreneurship. But we're also a very secular place, and statistics bear it out. But there are about 30% fewer people in church in, in Bay Area on a Sunday than, the rest of, than on average in the rest of the country. But I believe that that's, that's changing. God is at work in our area, and I've noticed this maybe the last five or six years. There are churches like this, with the goal to reach those that are far from Christ, and there are other churches. Some of the leading pastors are right here in the Bay Area. There are leading business executives that are willing to share their faith. One of the most surprising things that I've found are young entrepreneurs who are building their businesses to glorify Christ. TBC, you've heard Pat Gelsinger here a few years ago, Transforming the Bay with Christ, which has three goals. One is to unify the Christian community in the Bay Area. Second goal is to help facilitate serving the poor and disadvantaged. And the third is to plant new churches. And there are many new churches that are being planted in this area. So if you could dream for me for a moment, what if Silicon Valley became known not just as a place of innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, but a place of God? The world would take notice. Our role is, is to just come alongside what God is doing, to reach out to those that are around us, to pray, to be willing to share our story, and to invest time. Thank you very much. Let me just end in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for this opportunity we have. I pray that each one of us will accept that challenge to pray, to be willing to tell our story, and to invest time. Thank you. If you could pull out your, your um, connections card. And make sure you fill out the contact information. And there may be one of these boxes that are appropriate for you to fill out. But in my response to the message, I suggest this, if you feel up to it. And that is to write, I accept the challenge. And you could write specifically the challenge to pray, to share your story, or to invest time. Thank you very much.